Progressive Rugby League. G'day, John O'Duncan. Look, the 13th of Feb 2008 is an important date for Australia. That's the day the then PM Kevin Rudd delivered the national apology to the Stolen Generations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who, as children, were forcibly removed from their families and communities as a result of Australian government policies. I remember being at work. Apparently it was a Wednesday, but I could have sworn it was a Friday. Anyway, I was still pretty new to work at that time and was kind of still taking everything in, so I remember it very well. The office I worked in was one of those flat chat environments, never any speed but a million miles an hour. Except this Wednesday morning, unplanned, pretty much everyone stopped, listened, and yeah, there were tears. The apology as an act of historical acceptance was a significant step on what is a long road towards advancing Australia's relationship with the First Nations. But if and when Australia gets much further down that road towards where we need to be, we may well reflect on another date as perhaps even more significant. The 26th of May 2017 is the date the Uluru Statement from the Heart was delivered. The statement is an invitation to non-Indigenous Australians to walk with the First Nations on the path to a better, more just future. More specifically, it seeks a change to the Australian Constitution to give Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders more of a say on issues that affect them. And the statement calls for a Makarata Commission, Makarata, a Yolongu word meaning coming together after a struggle, to oversee the process of agreement-making and truth-telling. If that's all a bit much to take in within the first minute of a rugby league podcast, maybe put these three words in your back pocket. Voice, treaty, truth. And on that breezy autumn afternoon at Uluru back in May 2017, it was today's guest as a member of the Referendum Council that delivered this seminal statement to the nation for the nation. What a moment and what a privilege it is to have her on the show. On top of that, our guest is Pro Vice-Chancellor and Balnabes Chair in Constitutional Law at University of New South Wales. She's the newly minted chair of the UN Human Rights Council's expert mechanism on the rights of Indigenous peoples and, among other things, is an Australian Rugby League Commissioner. Our guest, of course, is Professor Megan Davis, a cobble-cobble woman from the Barangam Nation. Megan has kindly agreed to join us to discuss why the Uluru Statement from the Heart matters and, of course, to chat some rugby freaking league, including her relationship with the game and the role rugby league is playing and can play in the future to help bridge the gap for First Nations in this country. It's safe to say we're pretty chuffed to welcome Professor Megan Davis to the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Megan, hello. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Megan. Such a, a thrill to have you on board. Look, to, to kick us off, let's get to the story of Rugby League and Megan Davis. Can you tell us a bit about the role Rugby League has played in your life and how your relationship with Rugby League has evolved over your short lifetime to the point where you're an Australian Rugby League commissioner? Yeah, sure. Look, I, I don't remember any part of my life where Rugby League didn't feature prominently. It was something that, you know, my siblings played, my family, relatives always played, We used to watch, you know, rugby league religiously every single game of the round, like probably a lot of rugby league families, Mm. you know, every Saturday, every Sunday. And, you know, rugby league games, the rugby league season, the language, the jargon of the game being used by my brothers, you know, it was the vernacular in our house here in Eagleby in Logan City in Queensland Mm. throughout, you know, winter. So it's been a huge part of my life. When I moved to Sydney and I was on my own and left my family for the first time, 
you know, the first thing I did was go and watch a Roosters match at the SFS and continued to watch Roosters matches because I live in the East and I work for UNSW. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's always been a mainstay in, in our lives. I think, you know, in our family, education was very important to my mother and education is really key in terms of social mobility for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Mm. And so I think that rugby league played a really important role in structuring my study as well. We used to structure our study across the weekend okay. um, around rugby league games. So, yeah, it's a huge part of my life. Great. And we'll get to, to more about the relationship between rugby league and, and the First Nations a bit later, perhaps. But Megan, speaking of your role as a, an ARL commissioner, I'm an office worker. Uh, well, not right now. I'm still working at home in my Felicity track pants. But one of the things about working life is that you get siloed and, and don't really know what other parts of the organisation are doing. And I found people, when they don't understand what others do, they basically assume they do nothing. I've been guilty, for example, of murmuring to a colleague, yeah, but what do HR actually do? Now, uh, the reason I bring this up, Megan, is that I've heard similar criticism of the ARL commission in the past where people ask, yeah, but what do these ARL commissioners actually do? So can you set the record straight for us and give us a glimpse of what is involved in being an ARL commissioner? How does it work? How are issues dealt with? And and how are responsibilities apportioned? ARL commissioners do a lot of work. I mean, the first thing to say is it is a board of directors, not uncommon to many businesses in the corporate sector. So we obviously have very important statutory obligations in terms of the functioning and running of the business. So I'd make that point first. And so that requires us to meet, obviously, monthly to discuss the length and breadth of the business, including the budget, budget forecasts, rights negotiations, you name it. It's very, very, very diverse the matters that come across our desk each Mm. month but we also have quite frequently actually very early morning meetings we're all very busy people Mm -hmm. so we do like to meet at 6am and times like that to do other things so it might be just strategic discussions might be an issue that's a reason but it's a very active board we're constantly in contact with each other it's a very interesting commission you know we're all very different people Mm-hmm. a very different, diverse group who have different views and different opinions. So I've found the past couple of years, particularly out of Orlando, it's just absolutely, you know, really stimulating and important work because the commission, it's not a group think commission. Mm-hmm. We definitely thrive on coming at things from different perspectives and there's very good chemistry there in terms of then coming together on a particular issue and making it work. And I think, you know, there's probably a misconception that our chair suggest something and we all fall into line but actually it's a very very robust commission mm-hmm. is incredibly respectful of each and every one of us and our roles i don't think we've ever worked for a chair quite like him it's been a you know a really excellent experience to have a chair who is so seriously engaged with all of the other directors on the board and you know we have very animated discussion on a range of issues so you know rugby league is a 365 day a year it's a very busy business with a lot of work that goes way beyond just the season. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, although we get to the end of the season, we, we all kind of, you know, go into a bit of a rugby league coma because we can't, you know, we all miss the game so desperately. Mm. The, the business continues on and there's a lot of things to make decisions on. And that's the work of the commission. It's a very, very busy role. In addition to that, during the season, you know, we go to a lot of games. I try and get to a couple of games around, sometimes in Sydney, 
by COVID, I could get to every single game around. Mm-hmm. I like to see as many games as possible. I fly to Queensland, watch as many games as possible. I like meeting the other boards. I like meeting the other clubs, the other fans, and getting you really get the essence of all the other different clubs and their kind of quirky personalities and their homegrown ovals and their preferred ovals. And when you're out there talking to people, you know, same up here in Queensland, I've had the opportunity since I got locked out of New South Wales to go to Interest Cup games and. You know, just get down there on the ground and hear as much as you can about how rugby league land's feeling about particular things, what's bothering them, what they're liking, what are their anxieties, mm. you know, what are they achieving? There's so much that we do in this game that are such, you know, grand successes that we should be really kind of promoting in terms of the contribution we do make as a sport to Australia. So I'm kind of making myself tired talking to you, but it, it's a, <laughs> it's a, lot a very full job. Yeah. Fantastic. And, and in terms of the, the way that responsibilities are apportioned, so are they apportioned relating to interest? For instance, I don't know, the rules changes, was that something that would go to people who are more interested in that sort of thing or things around uh, diversity might go elsewhere? Is that kind of how it works or is it just so, a bit random? Kind of. I mean, I think we're all very involved with the game. We watch the game very closely. We obviously all monitor the statistics really closely, mm. you know, ref decisions, the works. But there is particular subcommittees that existed when I arrived sure. that lead different pieces of work. And so in relation to rules and that we are very much informed by, you know, players and coaches and experts in, in that space and, you know, Wayne, you know, will often share or at least participate in a lot of that. And, and then, you know, obviously we've got very strong business and accounting expertise in terms of Gary for example and so there'll be particular things like risk committee and things like that that people might you know lead on and then bring that back to the table and then there's times where you just you know everybody's a team player and chips in so you might be on a particular committee that's not particularly your strength but you know there needs to be ARLC leadership on so it just depends but um yeah that's usually a portion from that board level in consultation with the chair and the chair you know will make a call based on your workload or expertise cool well thanks so much for for sharing that insight that's that's fascinating now megan you've been an arl commissioner for i think over four years now what are some of the things that you've been a part of in that time where you've thought yeah i'm pretty happy with what we did there there's a few things I think obviously joining the commission I was really interested in you know rugby league and the role it plays in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community prior to joining the commission I was writing a book on you know rugby league's kind of pioneering work in this space I think it's a very heavy lifter in in the space of recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and Mm. rugby league since it arrived in Australia has been inextricably linked to our culture particularly in Queensland and New South Wales where it's the religion, right? Rugby league is the religion. Mm. So I've been really proud of the things that I've been able to do in my time in relation to that. I mean, you know, there's been incidents in the past where we really have brought the elite playing group into our decision-making to ensure that they have a voice and feel like they've got a voice and they Mm -hmm. feel like they can talk to us directly about things that affect their lives, including racism. Mm -hmm. Racism is one thing that I think I've been proud to be on the board and combat when it does happen and not everything is always public, Mm. that we've been able to be very resolute about our culture and our values, which is not to tolerate racism and to work hard to combat racial discrimination. And that's 
very important and I think it's, you know, publicly known a lot of the work that we did do in relation to some really serious racist incidents in the past Mm -hmm. with players and to work with media outlets to talk about the ways in which they report on race and racism, you know, can have a impact upon a particular player or playing group. So that's one thing. The other thing I think has been the growth of the women's game. It's been really incredible to be on the commission to watch that grow, to, to get feedback from players about things that might be not going so well and things that do go well. And so bringing women and young girls into the sport and watching that flourish has been you know, tremendously satisfying, but also I'm incredibly proud of the rugby league and how they've rolled that out. You know, we talked to the AFL and learnt very much from the mistakes that they made in the early days in the setup of their comp, particularly just too many teams, not enough resources, injury mm. rates, you know, not enough conditioning, all of those things, and taking that on board and growing at a pace that was commensurate to our game. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been a real credit to the NRL. And I think the other thing would be the stand-down rule. I think that's a really significant policy decision Mm -hmm. of the commission. Around serious allegations of criminal behaviour? Is that the one? Yes, but in particular in relation to sexual assault and any such behaviour against women. And I think that's really important because the game is changing, our community is changing, and the things that we thought, you know, weren't high-level, top-line issues to manage in the sport are... You know, people are drawing a line in the sand in terms of behaviour towards women and young girls. We have incredible, incredible programs in the NRL around violence against women and sexual violence against women that, you know, sees incredible former NRL players going out and delivering really evidence-based education around the fact that violence against women sits on a spectrum. It can Mm. begin with gendered language so for example gendered language that coaches or coaching staff or players might use you know just training on a field Mm -hmm. it goes from that and the other end the very far end of the spectrum is violence and the commission of a crime against a a woman and so there's behaviors that sit right across that spectrum and it's important that people see violence against women on that spectrum because All of the research shows, and we know from our work with the Australian government's Our Watch, that inequality, but in particular violence against women, comes from inequality, but comes from gender inequality. Mm -hmm. And so we know that one of the drivers of this is the absence of women. So we have a lot of work to be done in ensuring that all of us from headquarters at the NRL to clubs have significant numbers of women on their boards and in their company. Mm -hmm. And that there's all of these kinds of things that we can do in the business to make it a much more equal space where we have both genders working in in kind of the rugby league ecosystem. And it's important then that like the players, the rest of the game understands that violence against women and poor behaviour against women does come from sexism and misogyny. That's where Mm. it comes from. And it manifests itself in gender inequality. And there's lots of things that we can do as a game as we have done, to change the culture. And one of the things I think, as Peter Beattie has said time and time again, we had to move on this issue because so many sponsors and people who loved the game were seeking to exit the game because of what they perceived was poor behaviour towards women. Mm. So I think that's really important and it's been important to be a part of that culture shift in the sport. And rugby league should be proud of itself because it is a pioneering rule that sets us not only 
I'm ahead of the crowd in Australia, but in the world. Mm. And that's important. And it's important to all the women who work in the game. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a there's a lot in there in what you've just said and i think what you say makes the world of sense including getting more women on boards and into decision making roles but but also into the the day-to-day staff of a of an nrl club even at the training level because you know reflecting on some of this bad behavior a lot of it you get the sense that you know players go to high school and then straight into an nrl environment and and they may have been to an all boys high school or something so that they haven't actually been around adult women much at all so it seems uh, that is is also part of that realm as well. Yeah, yeah. Megan, what else would you like to achieve as an ARL commissioner? Do you have something in mind that you'd like to see the game pursue further? Do you have a time frame on your involvement with the commission in your mind? Oh, well, there's always lots of things that one would like to achieve. I think, you know, obviously I'm in deep alignment with our chair in relation to how we bring, you know, more grassroots communities back to the game. Not back to the game, but involve them further in in the game. I think I've been really thrilled at the way in which we've been able to take rugby league games to places like Rocky and Mackay. And I love the fact that we are trying as much as possible to take rugby league out into the regions of New South Wales and Queensland to our heartland. I think that's very important. And I have very strong views, as the chair does, about making game day something really compelling so that Fans want to return to the stadium and watch their team. And that might involve the recreation of a reserve grade type structure, but certainly putting, you know, more games on game day in the traditional sense. Mm. What we've heard from rugby league fans is they really loved watching players grow and move from junior grades to elite NRL competition. And I remember as a kid myself getting up on what Saturday mornings watching Commonwealth Bank Cup and mm. you know going to Broncos matches and watching all the earlier grades and reserve grades and just being able to see you know players go up and down that ladder, up the ladder, down the ladder, down the ladder, back up the ladder. You know, the ways in which you got to really understand and know rugby league players, those guys who made it to NRL were knocked back down to reserve grade and then made their way back up and all the tenacity and discipline that comes along with, you know, the highs and lows of elite sport. And I think it gave a lot of dimension and richness to our players and it allowed fans to really connect with what it is to be, um, you know, elite player. And it just gives so much depth and humanity to who they are in a way that sometimes you don't see that as much today because of the way social media works and the media works. So game day entertainment and improving that and the stadium policy is inherently linked to that. I think all of that is really exciting and, you know, exciting times ahead for rugby league. So there's there's still many, many things. I'm interested as everyone is in participation and growing the game. We've got a lot of reforms on the run at the moment and you know maybe next year i can come back to yarn with you about that as that all locks into shape mm. but yeah there's so much going on but i think one of the things i'm most passionate about and certainly in our kind of pathways and participation work is the ability of kids who grow up like where i am right now at my mum's house we've been in this little housing commission house here in eagleby in logan city for 34 years i think 35 years right you know and we've seen many great logan city rugby league players for in this area from you know cameron smith alan can mm. 
you know, you name it, there's so many. And what I'm passionate about is if you are a low socioeconomic kid, if you are an underclass kid who desperately wants to play rugby league, what's the pathways for him? You know, there are people that don't have cars, that people can't afford shoes, there are people that can't afford fees. There's, you know, there are still people in our community that can't afford those things. Mm. How do we, you know, break down the barriers that enable them to play this sport? Because like university was the pathway for social mobility for me. You know, the NRL and rugby league is the pathway of social mobility for other kids. Mm. How do we watch out for them and make those pathways really real and break down those barriers? So there's a, there's a lot of things I still think are yet to achieve. I think the NRL rap, I think, although I'm not always, you know, my academic writing is pretty critical of reconciliation, mm-hmm. um, reconciliation Australia and raps, but with the NRL, you know, I've been able to see the value that they bring to the table. Raps are able to structure Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander work within the framework of the business and it gives people KPIs to work for mm-hmm. or work towards. And that's been really important, I think. They're meant to keep boards of directors accountable. And that can be anything from employing Aboriginal staff to some of the other things that RAPS can facilitate, such as privileging Aboriginal businesses, for example, or setting up paid internships for Aboriginal and Torres people. Mm. There's many facets to the NRL RAP, and I think the next writing of that RAP will be important and seeing more of the things that we can do to bring more Indigenous people within to the NRL headquarters, mm. but also all the, the clubs as well. So that's really critical work. And Megan, the, um, the RAP, just for people who don't know, that's the Reconciliation Action Plan, is that right? Yeah, sorry. So yeah, that's, yeah, Reconciliation Action Plan. So they're basically plans you write up and then Reconciliation Australia takes you through a whole process and agrees, you know, with the KPIs that you choose to aspire to or achieve. Yeah. And that's how that works. Yeah, I actually um, I had a look at the rap for the NRL and, and I was expecting when I opened it up just to be kind of lots of motherhood statements and kind of language, but it's actually really got lots of tangible actions that, that a lot of have been actioned and addressed uh, and a lot to come. So, yeah, pleasantly surprised yeah, when I went through it. We do have very good people who work on Indigenous matters within the NRL business and Mark mm. DeWeird helped lead that. It's a very good rap. As you say, it's very drilled down. It's very nuanced. It's not wishy-washy. Mm. And we also have a Australian Rugby League Indigenous Council, which used to have Linda Burney as chair, that mm-hmm. now has you know Laurie Daly as chair, and Katrina Fanning. It's been um, their leadership has been excellent, and that input, particularly from ex-players, is really critical. It's really critical to really deep understanding of what's needed to be done to achieve you know better outcomes for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, not just the community, but the staff of the NRL. Yeah. Now, Megan, let's get to the relationship a bit deeper between First Nations and, and Rugby League. What are your, your thoughts on that relationship? You hear a lot about how there's a connection that's been built over generations. We had Dr Heidi Norman on the show earlier this year, and she took us through some of that history in New South Wales. But how do you reflect on that relationship between the First Nations and Rugby League? Yeah, it's, it's a, I mean, I love Heidi's work, I should say, from the outset. She's an exemplary First Nations historian and particularly when it comes to New South Wales Rugby League and Mm. career knockout. Like I said, I started working as a scholar, not, I mean, I'm a constitutional lawyer, so it's a bit outside of my area of expertise, although, you know, I, I have a Bachelor of Arts in Australian history, but what I am fascinated in is the deep connection between Aboriginal First Nations cultures, especially in Queensland and New South Wales and the Torres Strait and and definitely 
a lot of the Northern Territory mm. between those Aboriginal communities and rugby league and the role that it played when it arrived in Australia. One of the reasons I think I stumbled, I didn't stumble upon it, but I was reading my grandfather's file from the Queensland archives. So I don't know if your listeners are aware, but Australia um, had a very lengthy period in its history of racial segregation where Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, but mainly Aboriginal people were moved off mm. country, often at gunpoint, mm. and put into reserves or, or missions. So mm. reserves were state-run and missions were church-run. Mm. And missions were actually a piece of land that had barbed wire around it. And then they had dormitories for, you know, men and women, girls and boys. And people lived off rationed food and you know, people worked, but um, the money that they earned from working was put into an account that was controlled by the protector, who we would know today as the local policeman. Right. And mostly those salaries were never returned to them. Mm. That's a whole other story. So the reserves emissions were really brutal. And when we, our constitution came into being in 1901, we kind of moved into this and celebrated this early Australian nationhood. Mm. But at the, same, at the very same time, Aboriginal nations were being moved off their country and moved onto these reserves and missions. So they kind of happened around the same time, although the protection era started in the mid-1800s, really. Mm-hmm. But when Federation happened, virtually everybody was moved onto missions and reserves. Mm. And so not long after they were moved on there, so that was about 1901, and then Rugby League arrived in Australia, and that was about 1908, mm-hmm. there was this very huge take-up of rugby league in Aboriginal communities, which I found really curious. And I, the reason why I stumbled upon it was because of the articles in the archive in my grandfather's folder. Right. And I was meeting with the chief archivist in Queensland about, you know, she basically knows every family in Queensland. Mm-hmm. She, and then, you know, you can apply for your files and they give you the file because Australia kept really detailed, sorry, Queensland, kept really detailed records of the frontier. Mm. And so, you know, you can see all of these terrible letters that my grandfather used to have to write just to, you know, use his money to buy a a blanket or a lamp. You know, you'd have to write and they would say whether or not you're a well-behaved native or whether you drank too much or whether you weren't entitled to it or just make arbitrary decisions. Anyway, these files are huge, right? Mm. And and she knew I was from Sherberg and she gave me this collection of news articles that had been put on trove about rugby league and Frank Fisher, uh, who was the great rugby league player from Sherberg. Mm-hmm. And so it was from there, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And she said, you know, more and more as Queensland, it's not just Queensland, but right across the country, they digitise more and more of, clo- of the colonial newspapers, although this was post-Federation, the more and more we're getting a better insight into things that happened during that frontier period. So you're starting to see now in history books, the numbers of Aboriginal people killed in the frontier in Queensland skyrocket mm. because the numbers were so, in a very precise fashion, recorded in all the newspapers. Mm. So with all this advanced technology, it's it's much easier to trace how rugby league arrived in these reserves and missions. The very complex relationships between Aboriginal men and those pet chief protectors, mm. and they were brutal places mostly where people were really subjugated it is regarded as a time of great oppression, but for the opportunity, the singular opportunity of men to play rugby league. And so you would have Aboriginal men playing either in the local white team and mm. then going back to the reserve, 
um, but getting permission to play all full Aboriginal teams playing. But either way, it's a really fascinating story. It's not a Pollyanna story, but it's a fascinating story of coexistence. Mm. And, you know, there's some amazing, amazing rugby league administrators and men and ex-players that I've met and, and women since my time on the commission that just from, you know, being in and around Aboriginal people and players over the course of their lives and their mm. clubs just have a really incredible kind of understanding of, of this connection, deep connection between rugby league and Aboriginal people in a way that I don't find in any parts of the other parts of the country. And, mm. and, and so I suppose one of my concerns as a rugby league kid, I suppose, is the way in which, you know, the AFL likes to market themselves as, as this Aboriginal game mm. when, in fact, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. It's quite Whereas the myth, rugby isn't it? league actually has an incredibly authentic and real relationship between this sport and our people and the role it played in, um, you know, I use this language of emancipation. Mm. I mean, you can use it in many contexts, right, but there's this freeing capacity of rugby league for those men for those brief periods. I don't want to over-egg it, mm. but there's something really extraordinary about that, and it's not written about enough. It's not spoken about enough. I think Heidi Norman's work is excellent, and mm. I hope she continues to do that, but... It's something that's very difficult to describe. You know, one of the first people that reached out to me when I joined the commission was Dennis Watts, like just texted me immediately saying, I'm so thrilled and I'm so proud of you joining the commission and said that he'd played with my cousin actually in Harvey Bay when he was a kid. And so there was that connection there. And of course, he's gone on to have a terrific career operationally with the Broncos and um, obviously he's the executive chairman of the Titans. Mm. But just, you know, just having someone like that reach out and he really understands Aboriginal culture and there's a lot of people and a lot of people like that right across the club businesses that understand that deep connection between Aboriginal people and rugby league and it just makes me really incredibly proud to be a part of the sport. Mm. Fantastic. That's some great reflections. And I'd love to go into that further about the history and all that sort of thing. But I do note the time. So we'll continue on. So Megan, I mentioned in the intro about your involvement, uh, fairly pivotal involvement in delivering the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And actually, one thing I didn't mention in the intro was that you're also a, a 2021 Sydney Peace Prize laureate for your work on the statement. So there's the, the CV that keeps on giving. We're well past the fourth anniversary of that moment now. If you were chatting to footy fans, say, on the hill in Wollongong or the terraces of Townsville, how would you try and convey why getting behind the Uluru Statement from the Heart is so important for this country? Because, you know, I think a, a big chunk of the population, even if they're, they're sympathetic to the cause, that they see all this talk of statements and voices and it all seems fine but maybe a bit abstract. Um, so how do you cut to the heart of the matter and, and speak to everyday Australians and footy fans about why they should get behind it? I think it's a really good question. So one way of conveying it is to reflect on COVID, at least the beginning of COVID. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you had this kind of pandemic that I don't think many of us, any of us, had lived before. Mm. before. That's not very articulate, but let me keep going. <laughs> and um, when it came time to, you know, think about what are, what are we going to do to protect our community, the Prime Minister, you know, went to the experts, right? They went. He went to epidemiologists, health professionals, health experts, and said, what do we do to protect our community? And, and that's where lockdown came from. 
And then when it came to opening up the lockdown, he went to the business sector and to economists and said, how do we reopen the economy? Mm. What do we do to Mm. arrest the economic damage? And they gave him advice. And then when the Prime Minister needed to contemplate what to do about Aboriginal communities, the most vulnerable communities in the country, he went to the Aboriginal sector and we'd already shut our communities down. Mm. And I think what's really important about the first initial lockdown is no one in our communities got sick and nobody died. Mm. Um, and part of that was self-determination. That is to say, when we have control over our own communities, we can be really effective in delivering the government's policy. Mm. And one of the problems that we have in Australia, and it is the reason why we haven't closed the gap, it's the reason why that disadvantage is not being arrested despite 10 years of closing the gap and it's real government attention and mm. effort. Mm-hmm. It's because there's very few Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at the table. You know, the bulk of the people at the table are non-Indigenous experts talking on our behalf. Mm. And up until a couple of years ago, Ken White's agency, the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, didn't even have a single Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person in it. No. So the policies are designed by non-Indigenous people. They're executed by bureaucrats who are non-Indigenous. And nowhere along the line is there a requirement for them to talk to the actual affected communities to ask them, you know, what should we be doing in this space? If you did that, you would have better quality laws and policies that might actually make a difference to people's lives. Mm. But the problem is this. The Commonwealth Government isn't going to consult Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people if they don't have to. Yeah. And so right now they don't have to. And the problem that we have is the situation is getting worse. And so in relation to constitutional recognition, 10 years ago the Commonwealth came to us and said, all right, we want to recognise you in the Constitution. You know, how do you want it done? So we had a process, told them in 2012 what we wanted, and they said no. And then they ran another process in 2017. By this time, people were really despairing and they just kept saying, we don't have a voice. Mm. The sense of voicelessness is palpable, but it actually has an impact on our communities, not just in terms of health, but the policies being applied to us and misaligned because they're ones that aren't working because you're not involving local people. Hmm. And so, you know, the whole thing about the voice is about setting up a provision in the Constitution that compels the Commonwealth to have us at the table when it makes laws and policies about our lives. You know, they could have done that with the vaccine and they didn't. And look at what happened. There was no Indigenous person on that decision-making body about Mm. the vaccine rollout. And instead, it's been an absolute schmozzle, that rollout. And in fact, now it's December soon and that's when the National Cabinet's getting together to make a decision about how to roll out the vaccine in Aboriginal communities. Mm. Six months too late. Whether it's climate change, whether it's the bushfires, where again Aboriginal people weren't included in the decision-making, despite the fact that we know the country and the way it burns better than anyone else. And so, really, the reform is very light-handed in the Constitution. It's just setting up the power Mm. to have us at the table and that the Parliament has to put meat on the bones of what that looks like. So if any Australian was concerned about what that provision in the Constitution will lead to, then they, as long as they've got faith in the Parliament to be able to do the right thing there, Mm. then they, they should be confident that this reform will actually lead to better policies mm. and better better quality policies and better yeah. quality laws. And what that means then is that we will start to see the gap closing and we will see less money having to be spent 
in this sector because currently the money in the sector isn't going to communities. One of the biggest government policies is a business policy for Aboriginal businesses. Hmm. Now, that's not hitting the ground. That's not hitting grassroots communities. It's great for those people who can participate. But even the government policy settings are, are just policy settings that aren't influenced by Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people. Hmm. So that's not very simple. That's a constitutional lawyer's answer, right? That's why they hire me as a constitutional <laughs> lawyer and I'm not the com. I'm not a com. <laughs> I do know Australians know hmm. that governments don't always get it right and they sure as hell don't listen always to what we have to say and i think climate change is a good example where most aussies can feel us burning Mm. up actually and all you see in canberra is this kind of idolatry of fossil fuels Mm. i think most aussies can start to see the disconnect there regional aussies understand what we say because they're always ignored Mm. so people can understand what it's like to have their voice ignored by government Mm. all we're saying is that this tiny little constitutional change that we've never attempted in this country will have a huge impact in terms of fixing that. Now, it doesn't bind the government, but it allows us to have our voice. And that is all we're asking for, is let us have a say. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's quite a simple concept for decisions that are made in terms of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, have them at the table. Quite simple, I guess, yeah. Now, Megan... You've recently co-authored a book with George Williams called Everything You Need to Know About the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Now, I assume there's only one George Williams, so great, Philip, to have the former Raiders halfback on board for that. Now, there's, <laughs> there's a quote I'd like to share from the book, and it's a short one. Surveys of the Australian public show a disturbing lack of knowledge about the Constitution. Look, Megan, to that, I'd just like to say guilty. Um, my American friends talk with gusto about their constitution and the amendments and I'm nodding along but thinking you know guys dial it down a bit but but seriously how do you communicate the importance of all the relevance of the constitution to Australians including rugby league fans for people who want me to stick to rugby league uh, what's the big deal about the constitution so, so look the Australian constitution is a fascinating document because really I guess in some way it's like the actually I've got a partner who's a rugby league Journal and sports journal hates me doing this. I always explain constitutional and legal matters to him in rugby league terms. Oh, beautiful. I'm patronising him. So, but it is like a rule book, right? It tells you what you can and can't do on the field. Okay. Um, and most Australians know intimately the workings of the Constitution after COVID, right? And that is to say, what powers has the Constitution given the states and what powers has the Constitution given the Commonwealth? Mm. And all of the national cabinet and the kind of fighting between the states and the Commonwealth and states and states, that is all framed by the Constitution because of the tensions that exist in there. Mm -hmm. So the Constitution really frames everything, everything that we do in our lives. So what it does is it takes multiple subject matters that affect our lives from criminal law. I don't know why I chose that first. Criminal law. To health, to education, to fishing in the sea, you name it, and they break those powers up between the states and the territories and the Commonwealth. Right. Um, And so everything we do, and especially in COVID, was dictated by either a state law or a Commonwealth law. And so I think things to do with shutting down the state, for example, that is power that is given to the states to decide. So the Mm. Commonwealth can't decide that for the states. And then most of the health powers and the health sector is state business, except for the fact that the Commonwealth 
now it certainly wasn't envisaged in 1901, but the Commonwealth uses all of its cash through the GST and other grants to dictate what states can and can't do. Mm. So there's these constant tensions playing out between the states and the Commonwealth government. And I think most Australians are probably sick of that, actually, by now, two years later. (laughs) But all of that is constitutional. So a lot of people will be like, why can't they just get on with it? Well, they, they can't because the Constitution says, you know, Morrison does this and the Constitution says that Anastasia does that. And that's all driven by the Constitution. So the COVID period has been a fascinating period for constitutional lawyers mm-hmm. to watch the ways in which Australians have grappled with that. Beautiful. Thank you for that. Very educational. The Constitution is a rugby league rule book. That, uh, that helps me. <laughs> That helps me a lot. Constitution is a rugby league rule book. <laughs> Do I get that There's right? so many things. I can hear people saying, what about this? What about this? <laughs> yeah, no worries. What about the bunker? <laughs> what about the bunker? Okay. That's the state issue, the bunker, obviously. It's not a Commonwealth issue. Not, we are not discussing the bunker. <laughs> no worries. That's um, another Yeah, exactly. Megan, uh, it's clear that First Nations NRL players as a cohort are perhaps more openly engaged with their culture than past generations may have been. I recently saw the excellent documentary Aratika starring Dean Witters about his dream to see the Australian Kangaroos and other Australian sporting teams perform a a cultural dance or performance before sporting occasions like the rest of the Pacific does. Uh, Excellent film, by the way. How do you reflect on this trend of being more engaged with one's culture uh, I don't know if trend's the right word. Is it a sign of progress? Is it part of a, a broader societal trend towards identity, perhaps? Uh, what's your reading about, about this? Yeah, I think a lot of us reflect on this. You know, there's a lot of older players that grew up in a period where, you know, they just copped a lot of racism and said nothing. Mm-hmm. And or they were ashamed of their Aboriginality and didn't want to identify. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of that is probably proximity to that protection era yeah. and the moving out of reserves and missions to kind of, well, there was a assimilation period, but then there was this self-determination period too. Either way, I think that there's been an evolution over time or progression probably is a better word. And, and you know, we're all tremendously proud to see the way in which the current cohort of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players are so proud of their culture and they identify as a collective or a cohort and very engaged in their culture and very engaged with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander fans and community orgs. And, and so many of this current cohort are really heavy lifters in terms of community contribution and the time that they do give to community. And I think there's a few things to say about it, you know? Mm. Like, I, I'm really proud of all of them. Cody, Latrell, I'm really proud that we are at a position in our culture that our young people can feel, you know, empowered to talk up and identify and be proud. And we know and we've discussed with them that there has been a backlash that has come from certain parts mm. of the public and that is really difficult, you know. I mean, it's difficult to be an Aboriginal leader. I remember the early days of my work on constitutional reform and just the hate mail. Wow. It's shocking when it first happens, eh? Like, and you're told, matter-of-factly, by other senior Aboriginal leaders to just start a file that you can hand to the police if it gets out of control. And it's like, you know, I'm here, I'm freaking out. <laughs> what the hell? I mean, it's awful because yeah. it's, it, it's something when you get attacked and racism it, when it happens to you, it just, it's such a violation of your sense of self. Mm. And it's very easy to say switch off social media because this generation, that's how they communicate. You know, yeah. they're not playing, you know, hopscotch near the bubbles. <laughs> I don't know why. Just, <laughs> I've got these very old fashioned 
image of school now in my head. <laughs> I, I did exactly that, Megan. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> Kids today wouldn't even know what we went through. So we're tremendously proud of them. We also know that with profile and with standing up for your people that there's two things. One is that it can trigger a backlash and there are racist people out there in the community who will say racist things. The, the second thing is by them standing up, and saying they're proud to be Aboriginal it has this huge impact upon our young people, our young Jarjums, and how mm. they feel about themselves mm-hmm. and how they see themselves situated in the world. And when they see the oh, Greg Inglises and the Jonathan Thurstons and then, you know, the Latrells and the Cody's, like it just makes them feel more emboldened and proud mm. to do things and to stand up and talk. And so they have actually taught a generation of young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids to step up. If you hear it in the playground, if you hear it, you know, in the classroom, talk up, raise it. Yeah. Because often, and, and this I know applied to my generation, probably a lot of generation of older footballers, is racism is when it's not spoken about openly and brought to the fore, you're taught to shrink yourself, you know, and mm. try and invisibilize yourself even. Mm-hmm. And, and by talking about racism, it makes it easier then for people to talk up about it when it happens yeah um because you know it's a complex thing but by and large when people raise an issue and say that it is racist you know 98 times out of 100 it is a racist issue Mm. so yeah i think they're more openly engaged than previous generations just because i think society is changing I mean, I say that with millions of caveats, I'm sure you understand. Sure. But, you know, you look at Australia's... Australia's got a very sophisticated legal framework around racial discrimination. They had the Racial Discrimination Act was fully implemented in 1975. We've got the Racial Unification Act. It's not okay to say... You can't... People say, you know, free speech, free speech. There's no such thing as free speech. That's there right. are many, many laws set up to say, yeah, you've got free speech, but not violating that act, that act, that act. So you actually you can't say racist things. Mm and think you can get away with it because you can't. Mm -hmm. And so in many ways, the work that they do now in stepping up um, is laying, you know, the groundwork for future change as we move forward. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for that, Megan. And that film, Aratika, starring Dean Witters, it actually does uh, go into that a bit and sort of that generation shift from Dean Witters' father uh, who copped a lot of that stuff, he admits that it, he felt diminished by it. And then on to Dean, who didn't necessarily identify himself as a, a First Nations person. He didn't really see himself like that. And then his discovery of, of his culture and, and how he's trying to pass that along. So, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. I haven't seen it, but I, I've obviously got to know Dean from working at the NRL, yeah. and I'm, I can't wait to see it, actually. I mean, I know he worked really hard on it. Yeah, no. Last year, so um, I think again, it just adds another kind of former player, adding great depth and nuance to this. And I hope rugby league fans get to watch it. Yeah, no, it's not only like great message, but it's actually a high quality film too, that which is great. Now, yeah. Megan, education obviously very important to you. I commend to the listeners the Conversations podcast you recorded recently, which tells your story of being a kid from Logan making your way all the way to the. United Nations and obviously education a huge part of your life and when it comes to Australia's history uh, of relations with First Nations there's a fairly significant blind spot out there I've mentioned this previously on the show I'm in my 30s late 30s and I learnt basically nothing on that front at school 
And I know that's changing, but there are generations, my age and older at least, who may not have had much exposure to the war at the frontier, for example, the uncomfortable history since white settlement, the reality of compounding disadvantage, the sophistication of the First Nations society over history, you know, diplomatically, politically, environmentally. So there are many people that may have a broad understanding that there were past injustices, but they may have never really thought that much about it and, you know, why that history is still important or part of the present. So it's a long-winded way of asking, how do you see the role of organisations like the NRL in helping educate the broader public? Now, how far should you guys go to fill potential knowledge gaps? The NRL has a really important role to play um, in, in much the same way as the AFLC. They have a role to play in Soccer Australia. I mean, but in terms of the NRL, what's critical about the NRL is it covers the biggest kind of population in Australia, Queensland and New South Wales, hmm. with the biggest cohort of Indigenous people. So there's more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people over here and they all follow rugby league. And so that kind of relationship between Indigenous peoples and rugby league means that rugby league, you know, has a, a really critical place in educating the broader rugby league population about Aboriginal or First Nations matters. Mm-hmm. So one of the key things the NRL has is a reconciliation action plan, and that's a really solid first step. And I go to a lot of clubs, launches of raps and rap events, and I, I remember just recently, recent in terms of COVID, the Roosters launch of their rap mm-hmm. was an incredible event. And you go to these things and you see the deep ties and connection clubs like the Roosters and others have to their local Aboriginal communities. So the rap can help in that way. But I think in terms of educating the broader public, I think the evolution, I keep using that word, of Indigenous week in terms of our rugby league rounds, you know, the way in which all of the media partners were able to, and this happened last year when we first did it, announce the local First Nation where the game is played or the ground that it's played at, mm-hmm. its Aboriginal name, the local First Nation. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing, it has huge impact upon education of Australians about, you know, important things to do with Aboriginal culture, such as the fact that they view themselves as a nation group. That is the language that they use, that there are over 200-odd on this continent, for example, and it is not just one group, that it's not some kind of monocultural group that applies to everyone. So we're very different, for example, to the Māori in New Zealand mm-hmm. or Aotearoa. So there's, there's little things that the NRL already does that I think is really important. They do do acknowledgements of country. They do do welcome to country. But I also think increasingly, and this is one of the roles that I think and hope I play on the board, is emphasising to the game the role they do play in being a part of this national conversation about First Nations peoples and, and their place. Mm. So, you know, for example, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, the NRL endorsed it, but that was before I joined the board because all of the Elevate raps endorsed the Uluru Statement. Mm. So I probably joined about four months after we'd already endorsed it. You know, that's an important thing that the NRL does in saying we support a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. But the NRL says that because effectively we have our own voice in China in the Constitution, right? We have our Australian Rugby League Indigenous Council and we consult them on everything that we do when it comes to Indigenous people. So mm-hmm. we know intuitively, because our own business does it, 
the importance of good quality policies as a sporting organisation, and you only get that if you're working with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples yourself. So there was that synergy there, and, and the NRL supporting Uluru was really significant, right? Yeah. The first sporting organisation to take that leadership. And many have come on board since, but embedded in all of that Uluru work and the RAP work is this notion of truth and justice, and it's at the core of reconciliation. Hmm. And the formula kind of goes like this, you know, to, to move on in terms of reconciling what has happened, you need to know what truth is, mm-hmm. so that's the history component, and you need to know what repair looks like to the group who had suffered significant wrongs. Hmm. So truth can be contested, so it's okay for people to have different ideas of Australian history, but you can agree to disagree. And you can also have a shared narrative and you can move on, and that is the truth component. And I think there's many ways in which the NRL does that on a daily basis, including the support we give to you know, research projects or rugby league history in the area of Indigenous peoples, Mm -hmm. you know, we are still working towards a Frank Fisher medal to acknowledge, you know, Frank Fisher and his skill, but all of those men who played rugby league during the frontier period under racial segregation. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, right? Mm -hmm. These incredible men who were exceptional players, but, you know, would leave after the siren goes and head back to racial segregation behind barbed wires. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, it's astonishing history. So in terms of corporate social responsibility, I mean, I think rugby league's always been at the forefront of a lot of social issues. Mm. It is what it is. I mean, look at same-sex marriage and the leadership Todd Greenberg showed on that. Yeah. Um, and that incredible grand final where Macklemore played that incredible anthem mm. um, to same-sex marriage. And I, I can't remember a time where I felt so proud of the rugby league audience because when that song was played i mean it was extraordinary and turnbull and shorten were in the box and every rugby league fan in the ground put up their phones and, and you know it was just before the vote and just extraordinary yeah. and the afl didn't do that right they didn't go out like we did mm. so it just is rugby league yeah we are a tough sport but we're also pretty courageous on big social issues and I don't think that that's a bad thing in fact as we saw with a lot of businesses around the world there's a lot of work going on in that space of corporate social responsibility but you know when I reflect on things like Rio and Yukon Gorge Mm. and the pressure that stakeholders and shareholders bring to bear on some of those bigger corporations you can see that something's in the wind around these kinds of things and I think Fundamentally, and at our heart, we're a business. And are there things that we can do, you know, as a business to influence the broader community? Yeah, there are. And I think rugby league's quite advanced, actually, on that. Hmm. It's certainly not the way it's framed always in public discourse. But, you know, as someone who, you know, has had a 10-year career, you know, working, you know, at the United Nations on on these matters, Hmm. it's an extraordinary sporting organisation that, you know, is pretty kind of frank about our flaws. You know, we never, we're not big on optics and hiding from our flaws and challenges. We're, we're very open about that. And then a little bit sometimes I think reticent to really promote the really great work that we do. Mm. So in terms of, you know, that question is a good question. But I have to say, you know, I always say this, Australia or rugby league is, a, in my view, the heavy lifter of social cohesion in this country. 
the biggest populations of Western Sydney, Southeast Queensland. That is rugby league towns and cities. Mm-hmm. They are rugby league regions. And this is the game that people watch from affluent people to people in low satisfaction, low income jobs. Yeah, it's yeah. Friday night football, Saturday football, Sunday football, rugby league brings so much to people's lives but more importantly it keeps you know in my view i think it's contribution in terms of multiculturalism and the kinds of tensions that we're able to keep at bay i think i think rugby league is not perfect but it is the work of multiculturalism in this country and the community contribution we make that no one hears about in places like logan city in places like western sydney that nobody hears about our outreach to our incredibly important ethnic cultural communities, our outreach to Indigenous communities. You asked that question earlier about what does the ARL commissions do. Mm. I'm just blown away by all of the things that we do in that social space. And that's quite an incredible contribution to make, I think. And something that all rugby league fans should be really incredibly proud of. Mm. Megan, thank you so much for that answer. That's Brilliant. Thank you so much. Megan, we're fast running out of time. In fact, we're over time and, and apologies right. and thank you. Thank you for staying on. But I'm so appreciative that you've taken the time to join our little pod. We've been communicating on and off for a while and you were well within your rights to say, you know what, Jono, I've got a few things on, okay, but you never said that. You kept saying, yes, mate, we'll, we'll find a time, which just shows the kind of person you are. So I want to reward you by allowing you to riff on a couple of lighter questions uh, and like they may be, uh, they're still darn important. So first up, what are a couple of your favourite all-time rugby league moments? Oh, so my initial response would be, and I always say this, the Kangaroos tour to play the Lions. I, I must have been in grade 11, I think. Okay. So we're talking um, maybe 1990 or something. It's the famous try where there was an intercept and Mal Meninga scores that. It yes. was Mal, wasn't it? Yeah. It was 1990, no. actually. It must have been grade 10. 1990, yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. And I still remember getting up for it with my siblings. And I never raised this with Mal because you never want to, <laughs> you know, carry on like like my nieces do when Jonathan <laughs> Thurston comes in eyesight. They just behave appallingly. But <laughs> it was just so spectacular. And I, I just remember that those times when I used to get up with my siblings really early in the morning to watch those games. But, yeah, no, I, I think it was 1990, probably the second test, I think. She's mm. not getting old. I can't remember anything unless <laughs> I Google it. But really, um, I think this question is probably watching the Raiders win their first ever grand final. Um, right. It turned me into a Raiders fan. I don't tell anyone that. I was a Raiders fan for a long time. I used to have this Camerata Teddy, Camerata Cup. <laughs> My siblings used to hide the teddy bear. <laughs> I loved them in the heyday. I loved Laurie Daly, Ricky Stewart, Bradley Clyde, Mal. Like, it was such an incredible team. Yeah. So that, that's probably another fond... 89, yeah. ...time rugby league moments. Yeah. My brother used to hide my bear as well. I mean, I, I don't have issues over that at all, but um, it, I remember it very yeah, well. I, I, don't, I don't get the disappearing bear thing. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, okay, I yeah. loved them. Much, yeah. yeah. Okay. And and finally, who would you regard as your favourite rugby league player of all time? You may have just answered that question. Yeah. No. Actually, that's a hard question because I don't want to single anyone out. Probably. Like I really. So I really admire the the play, the skill of GI and JT. That's yeah. genuine. I you know, and and also then Matty Bowen, like incredible player. Um, I think. 
probably Mal Meninga, I'd have to say. Sure. I mean, we just loved him and adored him as kids. Yeah, big Mal. How can you go wrong? Yeah, I mean, he was my generation. Well, not my generation, he's older than me, but, I mean, he's who, you know, as a kid we, we really followed. Yeah, I think, I okay. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Well, Megan, we are out of time now, but... Uh, I just want to say it's been such a joy and, and yes, a privilege to have the chance to chat to you. And I know our listeners will get a real kick out of your passion for not only our great game of rugby league, but your passion and ambition for making Australia a fairer and more just place for future generations. So, Professor Megan Davis, go well and thank you very much for joining the Progressive Rugby League podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Progressive Rugby League. Alrighty, there you have it. Australian Rugby League Commissioner. And look, one of Australia's best full stop, one of our best minds for sure. And her life story is a really interesting one. And dare I say it, quite inspirational too. We didn't have time to get into that, but I commend to you the Conversations podcast Megan recently did with Richard Feidler. If you're interested in getting to know your ARL Commissioner a bit better. Righto, let's call it. Pleasure as always, ladies and gentlemen. Until we next meet somewhere in Rugby League La La Land, Rugby League Hobby, and see ya. 